It is truly an evidence of God's blessing uh, upon us that we have so many who are willing uh, to give of their, their time and their energy uh, to come alongside our parents and the raising up of our children and the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke 24 verses 1 through 12. If you haven't already guessed from the songs that we've been singing this morning that we come this morning to the Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 884. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you will remember that last Sunday, as we looked at those events that transpired immediately after Jesus' death, in those events we saw three clues that things were not as they appeared to be. First, we saw the reaction of the centurion who, upon seeing all that had taken place, praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. As I said last Sunday, that's an odd response to seeing an innocent man murdered by the state in order to appease a bloodthirsty mob. What is it that made him praise God? We tried to answer that question last week, but what we saw is that his unexpected doxology was the first clue that things are not as they appeared to be. Second, we saw the efforts of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea to give Jesus a proper burial. And again, we, we noted that, that Jesus, uh, Joseph's efforts were, were so out of the ordinary, so unexpected, that many historians today simply refuse to believe they ever happened. They, they find it implausible. But of course, the implausibility is the point. The implausibility of a, of a man crucified as a criminal receiving the, the burial of a righteous man is exactly the point. And it's the second clue that, that things are not as they appear. Our third clue was in the Sabbath rest of the women. As I said, the, the Sabbath was meant to be a foretaste of the salvation that God had planned for his people. It was that opportunity to, to rest in his promised and perfect provision. And for that reason, the, the women resting on the Sabbath is a clue. It is a, a hint that despite appearances, God's plan of salvation has not been derailed by the death of his Messiah. Every other would-be Messiah saw his, his work dissipate and dissolve when he died. But not Jesus. Despite appearances, the promise of a true Sabbath rest still stands. Even after, I might even say, because of Jesus' death and burial. So three Clues, three clues that, that each tell us that things are not as they appear to be as Jesus dies upon the cross. And this morning, we will see those three clues de decisively confirmed in Luke's account of the empty tomb. So let's read it together. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. This is the very word of God. But on the first day of the week, 
At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly asking for your grace. Father, may you be with your word preached, and according to your promise, may it not return void, but that it bear fruit among us. Father, open our eyes to see our risen King. Open our hearts to believe that you indeed have raised him from the dead, and that in him we now have a living and sure hope of an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Father, may this gospel take root in our hearts even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke tells us that after resting on the Sabbath, according to the commandment, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the women set off for the tomb, taking the spices that they had Prepared. Clearly, their, their plan is to anoint Jesus' lifeless body with those spices. They, they didn't expect to find anything but, but, a, but a corpse lying in a tomb, precisely where Joseph had left it. However, when they arrived at the tomb, things were not as they expected before I talk about what they found when they, they got there, I want to say just a word about the various accounts we have of the events that transpired that morning. The women's early, uh, the women's early morning journey to the tomb and the events that, that followed are recorded for us in all four Gospels. And they are referred to throughout the rest of the, the New Testament, most notably in 1 Corinthians 15, which I read part of this morning as our call to worship. And you may or may not know that those various accounts from the Gospels and from the epistles, but particularly the, the Gospel accounts, that those accounts are notoriously hard to fit together. It is difficult, if not impossible, to, to know for certain the precise order of events that morning. Now hear me carefully, I am not saying that those accounts contradict one another. They, they do not. 
But I am saying that it is hard to know exactly how to fit all the details together. It's hard to construct one continuous narrative. And I want you to know that I'm not even going to try to give you such a harmony this morning. If you're interested in that sort of thing, there are all kinds of resources out there that can help you know what the questions are and, and help you begin to try to figure out how to piece all the different events together. I'm, I'm not going to do that this morning, but I do want you to hear me say this. We do not need to be troubled by our inability to, to fit together the various accounts. The four gospel accounts each tell the story of that morning from a, a particular perspective and, and for a particular purpose. None is, is seeking to record the events with some sort of dispassionate precision. They're not, they're not trying to give us an exact chronology of, of the morning. But rather, they're, they're trying to tell the story. The, the story of Jesus' resurrection. The, the story of the, the women and the apostles discovering the empty and therefore each author chooses to include some details while passing over others. And that's okay. It's, it's even good. If the stories were made up, they would fit together more neatly. In real life, when, when multiple witnesses all tell the same story in the same way, with all the same details and precisely the same chronology, it strongly suggests collusion. It strongly suggests that they have met together beforehand to, to get their story straight. And why would anybody do that? Why would anybody meet together to, to get their story straight? I can tell you it's not usually to uncover the truth, but to conceal it. When people need to get their story straight, it's because there's something they don't want people to know. They want to offer a plausible counter-explanation. So as we come to this account this morning, we, we need to recognize that the differences between the various accounts are not a weakness, but a strength. They support the historical truth of the accounts. They, they don't prove it, but they are in accord with these being true recollections, true accounts of the events that these people experienced that morning. The gospel writers are telling the true story of that morning from a variety of perspectives. They're not trying to tell a story that, that fits with all of the others. They're simply telling the truth. So therefore, while we may not know precisely how all the pieces fit together, that's, that's okay. Because the big picture of what happened that morning is beyond dispute. The women went to the tomb and they found it empty. The angels announced to them that, that Jesus is not here, he is risen. They went to tell the apostles, and the apostles doubted. But Peter ran to see for himself. Those are the events that we will look at this morning. So let's begin looking at them by looking at what the women found. As I said, the women set out for the tomb at, at early dawn. And the first thing that they discover, the first thing that's out of the ordinary, the first thing that was unexpected is that when they arrive at the tomb, the stone that was covering the tomb's entrance has already been rolled away. We know this is unexpected because the other Gospels tell us that along the way the women had been discussing with one another what they were going to do to move the stone so that they might get to the 
body. No doubt that they were somewhat shocked, maybe significantly shocked, when they arrived at the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away. But not only do they find the tomb open, next we are told that when they go into the tomb, they find it empty. They do not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And clearly this is not what they were expecting. They were there to anoint the body with spices. They, they, they were there to, to treat the body, the, the corpse of their Lord. But when they go in, it is not there. So let me ask you, what do you think was going through their minds when they saw all this? What do you think were their first thoughts? I think we can be pretty certain that their first thoughts were not, Hallelujah! He's risen! Resurrection was not even on their radar. It was probably the furthest thing from their minds. When they, when they saw the tomb open, when they saw that it was empty, most likely their first thoughts were that Jesus' body had been stolen or worse, moved by the authorities, whether Roman or Jewish. They don't know what has happened. They only know that Jesus' body is missing. And whatever their thoughts, Luke tells us that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. As they are pondering what they've seen, two angels appeared. As we've seen so often throughout the scriptures, the, the response of the women to the angels was fear and trembling. Luke says that they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. But as they are trembling before the angels, the, the men speak to them saying, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. So again, imagine for a moment that you were there to, to hear the angels' words. What do you think would have been your response? Yes, you would have been trembling with fear just like, like the women, but, but what do you think you would have responded? How do you think you would have responded when you heard the angels' message? I suspect that if I had been there, I, I would have been confused and, and bewildered. I'm pretty sure I would have asked them to repeat themselves. What, what did you say? Could you say that again? Did, did you say he is risen? What does that even mean? I would have been like the disciples coming down the Mount of Transfiguration saying, I wonder what Jesus means by, by dying. What do you mean by rising? What do you mean that he is alive? I, I'm pretty sure that would have been my response. If I had been there, I would have been bewildered. I would have been confused. I would have been asking questions. But I want to suggest to you that that ought to be our exact response this morning. When we hear the angel's words, we, we must not let our familiarity with the story just control us. But rather, we must say, what did they just say? What does that even mean? What are the angels saying? Well, well clearly, they are saying that Jesus is alive. Why do you seek the living among the dead? But what we need to understand is that they're actually saying more than just this. You see, I believe that my grandmother and I, I believe that my grandfathers who have died are alive. Even now, they are alive in heaven with God. And I have good biblical warrant for this 
to leave. Remember the words of, of Jesus to the Sadducees. He, he challenged them, saying, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob is the God of the living, not the dead. And therefore, in saying this, Jesus was, was proclaiming that Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob were alive even as he spoke, even though they had been dead for a very long time. Remember also the, the words of the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in, in paradise. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that the thief is going to die, but he is also going to live. And so if the angels merely said that Jesus was alive, they might have meant only this, that, that Jesus had gone into paradise and that there he was alive with God in heaven, just like Abraham, just like my grandparents, just like all of the other saints who have gone before us. But of course, this is not all that the angels said. They did not simply say that Jesus is alive. What do they say? He is not here. He is risen. So it's important that we understand what this means. What does it mean to say that he is risen? And again, we have to protect against misunderstanding. When the angels say that, that Jesus is arisen and, and alive, they do not mean that his spirit is, is now alive in some immaterial, non-physical way, active in this world. That even less do they mean that his memory and his cause carry on the life of his Followers. That's simply not what their words mean. But rather, when the angels say, He is not here, He is risen, they mean that He is risen bodily, that He is risen physically from the tomb and is now once again bodily, physically alive. This is what the angels are declaring to Jesus who was alive before the cross, the Jesus who died on the cross, the one whose body was laid in the tomb, is now alive again with that body. Transformed, yes, to be sure. We'll, we'll see more of that in the weeks ahead. But for now, just simply notice this. Jesus is alive with his body. Jesus is resurrected bodily, physically, from the dead. Now I realize that is hard to believe. Many today simply refuse to believe in the resurrection because, after all, we know people don't rise from the dead. We are modern, scientific people. We, we know better than to believe such things. Yes, they make for great stories. Yes, they, they illustrate powerfully points that we like to make about overcoming obstacles in this life, but such things don't happen in real life. If that's what you're thinking, or if that's what you're, you're tempted to believe this morning, I want you to understand that ancient pre-scientific people found it just as implausible. They found it just as impossible to believe. They, they knew as well as we do that people don't rise bodily from the dead. Yes, most of them believed in life after death, just as most people today believe in life after death. But most of them, just like most of us, found it implausible, if not impossible, to believe in bodily 
resurrection. It's simply not something that those pre-scientific people found easy to believe. We, we see this in the disciples. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. When the women go to the disciples, when they go to the apostles to, to tell them all these things that have happened, what are we told? These words seem to them, that is to the apostles, these words seemed to them but an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It was not their instinct to believe these stories. They, they no doubt began to offer all sorts of explanations for why what the women think they saw isn't what actually what they saw. They, they began to offer all sorts of explanations for why they were confused or why their, their grief had blinded them to reality, why they were living in some sort of delusion. They simply didn't believe them. But, but what about Peter? In verse 12, we are told that when Peter heard the women's report, he ran to the tomb to see for himself. Again, the, the question is worth asking. What, what do you think he was thinking? What do you think was going through his mind as he was running to the tomb? Obviously, it's, it's hard to say for Certain. There, was, there was probably some part of him that, that desperately wanted it to be true. There, there was some part of him that was longing for the stories to be true. But, more than likely, there was another part of him that was running there to prove it wasn't. Have you ever done something like that? I do it so often, it's sort of a running joke in my, in my family. When someone says something that I don't believe, something that I'm pretty sure isn't true, I pull out my phone and I use Google to, to prove to them that, that they are mistaken. And I suspect that there, there was something of that going on in Peter's heart as he, as he ran to the tomb. He was going there to prove what he thought. To prove that there's no way this could be true. To find out how the women had made mistake. But whatever he was thinking, we are told that after seeing the empty tomb and seeing the claws lying there in the tomb, Peter went home marveling. But what does that mean? What does, it, what does it mean to say that he went home marveling? Does that mean that as soon as he saw the empty tomb, he, he understood and believed the resurrection? I don't think so. Marvel is a word that has been used many times throughout Luke's gospel to, de to describe both the disciples and the crowds when, when they stood in awe of something they could not understand and didn't quite know what to make of it. For example, we, we saw it in Luke chapter 4. We are told that, that after hearing Jesus preach and teach in the synagogue, the crowds marveled at his teaching right before they dismissively asked, Isn't this Joseph's? We see something similar in Luke chapter 8 with the disciples. After Jesus calms the storm, the, the disciples marvel, even as they say to one another, Who then is this that commands even winds and waters? And they obey him. And so when Luke tells us that, that Peter went home marveling, he does not mean that, that now he's got it. Now he, he believes in the resurrection. Rather, he means that he went home awestruck. He went home confused. He went home processing, trying to understand something of, of what was presently beyond his comprehension. And I think that ought to 
comfort us. It, it ought to reassure us. The Gospels were not written by gullible ancients. The first witnesses were not credulous fools. They, they were, on the contrary, incredulous. Show me skeptics just like us. And yet, faced with the evidence, they were compelled to believe. And, significantly, they were compelled to begin living as if Jesus had indeed risen bodily from the grave and was now alive with his body because they knew it to be true. We're going to be considering some of that evidence in the, the weeks to come as we, we see it presented to us by Luke. We will, we will see what this evidence was that turned these skeptics, that turned these doubters into believers. Well, let me give you just a, a very brief preview now. What is it that, that convinced them that this was actually true? Jesus showed up and ate with them. We see it first with the disciples on the road to, to Emmaus. Jesus shares a meal with them. And in the breaking of the bread, their eyes are open. Then we see it again with the, the rest of the disciples as they gather together in Jerusalem. Jesus shows up and eats fish with them. And as they encounter the risen Lord, as they encounter him with a body, eating uh, real food with them, they cannot but begin to believe because the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus shows up and eats with them. We, we heard it even in Corinthians, in the, the Corinthians 15 passage, that, that Jesus appeared not to one person in the cave, but he appeared to this person, then he appeared to this person, he appeared to 500 at one time, Paul tells us, and, and many of them are still alive. What's the implication? He, he's saying, listen, go ask them. The eyewitnesses are there. Jesus showed up and he ate with them. Jesus rose from the dead bodily. The evidence is overwhelming. But before we get to all that, though, we need to understand that believing the resurrection doesn't mean merely believing that it happened. It doesn't mean just believing the fact. Yes, it, it means that. To believe the resurrection is to believe that this is true history, that this is a historical count, that these things happen in space and time. Yes, it, it means that, but it means more than that. Believing the resurrection also means believing its significance. In God's providence, the way things work out sometimes amazes me, but in, in God's providence, the desiring God devotional, I don't know how many of you use the Solid Joy app on your phone or whatever, but they'll send you a devotional every morning. And, and the, the, the devotional from desiring God this morning touched on this very thing. It was an excerpt from a sermon that John Piper had preached on Romans 10, 9. And, and Piper asks, what does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Satan believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. He saw it happen. Therefore, believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is much more than accepting a fact. Yes, we, we must accept the fact. But believing in the resurrection, believing that God raised him from the dead is accepting the significance of the fact. So what is that significance? What is the significance? of the tomb being empty? What is the significance of Jesus rising 
from the dead. Look back with me at verses 6 and 7. After telling the women that Jesus is risen, they, they go on to say, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and, and be crucified and rise on the third day. To be clear, they're talking about Jesus, the Son of Man. This, this Jesus is the, the, the phrase that, that Jesus most often used to, to talk about his ministry as the Messiah. And so anyone who, who knew their Hebrew Bibles well would have known that, that Jesus here is, is speaking about himself as the Messiah. And so the angels are saying, that, listen, Jesus told you that he was going to die. Jesus told you that he was going to bury. Jesus told you that on the third day he was going to rise. But why did he do that? Why do God's prophets announce beforehand things that are going to happen? It's, it's not just a, a, a cool parlor trick. It, it's not just a way to, to show off their, their prophetic abilities. Rather, the prophets tell us the things that are going to happen so that when they happen, we will know that it was God who was in control of the things that transpired. When Elijah announces that it's not going to rain, and then it doesn't rain. The king should know that it is Yahweh who has stopped the rains and not Baal. And therefore, it is Yahweh who can tell him the significance of the drought. It's the same here. If God has announced beforehand through his prophet Jesus that, that these are the things that are going to take place, when they take place, we ask God to help us understand the significance of what has transpired. And so then what does God tell us about the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection? What does he tell us is, is the significance of these things? Well, again, think of 1 Corinthians 15. What does Paul say? He doesn't just say that Jesus died. He says that Jesus has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Because Jesus died, the record of death that stood against us has been canceled. Our debt has been paid in full in Him through the shedding of His blood. We now have forgiveness of our sins. But more than this, Paul goes on to say, And He was raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? What does, it, what does it mean to say that, that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Well, Paul himself explains it for us. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So this is the significance of, of Jesus' death. Once we, once we believe the fact, we, we have to come to believe the significance. We have to come to believe that his death and resurrection mean that all those who belong to Christ, all those who, who believe in him, all those who have received and rested upon him as Lord and Savior, all of his disciples, for them, our sins are forgiven. And we now have a sure and certain hope. A living hope. 
of future resurrection. As he was raised, so will we be raised. Raised to, to possess a, an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in his coming eternal kingdom. For now, we live on in our mortal bodies. But one day, unless Christ returns first, we will die. Our bodies will cease to function. We will be dead even as Jesus was dead in the, the grave. But the sting of death is gone. Its victory has been swallowed up. Now in Christ to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day, we will be raised new, bodily, to a renewed, undefiled life in a perfected kingdom. That is our hope. That is the meaning of the resurrection. And it is this hope that allows Paul to write in 1 Corinthians, We do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel that your outer nature is, is wasting away? Do you ever feel the mortality of your present body? Paul says, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Familiar words, but notice just a few things. Notice, Paul knows there will be afflictions. He knows that in this life we will groan. He knows that in this life there will still be suffering. We will endure hardship. We will live through brokenness. You, you all know this firsthand. But notice what he says, that those afflictions are slight and momentary. That doesn't mean they'll only last a few minutes or even a few days. It means they can't last longer than a lifetime. They can't last longer than you're alive in this mortal body. They are slight and momentary. They can't last longer than this life, and they can't do more than kill you. But that's okay. Because God is using those afflictions to prepare for you a weight of glory, a weight of resurrection glory that is beyond all comparison. This is the living hope that is now ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yes, it is hard to believe. Yes, it is truly incredible, but it is true. On that first Sunday morning, whatever the exact order of events, the tomb was empty. And because the tomb was empty, because Jesus indeed was risen. We can now live as people of hope. We, we can live out this hope in our marriages. We can live it in our parenting. We can live it in our friendships, in our, in our workplace, in our play, in our stewardship, in our generosity. And every area of our lives can now be shaped by this sure and certain hope that one day we will be raised to new life in a new kingdom. And that this, the sufferings of this life are but slight and momentary compared to what God has in store for his people. And if you struggle to believe that, then you're just like all the rest of us gathered here this morning. 
And if you struggle to believe that you have come to exactly the right place, we sometimes think that we should only come to worship when we're really bubbling and overflowing with worship. But no. In those moments when it's the hardest for you to praise, in those moments when it is the hardest for you to believe, those are the moments when you most desperately need to be here. You need to gather together with God's people. You need to hear His Word read and preached. You need to sing the songs of the faith. You need to confess that faith together. And you need to remember that Jesus Christ is risen. He is our risen King. And through His resurrection, all those who believe in Him now have a sure and certain and living hope. And because that is our gospel, because that is what we are gathered here together to celebrate, because in Him we now no longer fear death, but look forward with certain expectation to life in a coming kingdom. That's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. Father, we marvel at the resurrection. We, we wonder at it. And Father, frankly, we sometimes find it hard to believe in the midst of our own pain, in the midst of our own groaning. We can wonder whether there is any hope. Father God, let us set our eyes upon Jesus. Give us the grace we need to believe. Give us the grace we need to rest in Him for the sure and certain salvation that you have accomplished through his death and resurrection. All of this we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.